This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week on The Unseen, I am very happy to have my friend Joshua Cutchen as a guest. During this interview, we talk about three of his books, uh, most particularly about his third and most recent book, Thieves in the Night, and that is subtitled A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions. And this is a book that compares and contrasts the ancient fairy lore of changelings and stolen babies to the modern UFO contact experience, which has a parallel track of reporting that includes missing pregnancies and alleged hybridization of children. We touch on a wealth of subjects related to these three books, as well as a bunch of other stuff. And I have to say, it is wonderful. This guy is a great speaker, and it gave me the chance to, uh, to let me say, be a little bit more quiet in the role of, of interviewer. Uh, he sure held the floor, which I was very grateful, and he does a wonderful job. This interview was recorded Friday, October 4th, 2019. Please enjoy. Joshua, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with someone that I have long admired and who I count as a friend now after having met you earlier this year. So it's, it's, it's to be expected from my end. It's a pleasure as well. Yes, we got to hang out. Oh, that's one thing. Where there's, I have a funny story that we'll talk about involving a fork uh, or a series of forks when we actually met in person. You know, when I when Whitley asked me, would you want to do a podcast? My thought was, well, if I do a podcast, I can talk to all my friends. And so this is it. It took us a long time. I've been pestering you for the now the last six months or so to do this. And finally, we're, we're here and it's happening. So thank you so much. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. You know, that's part of the reason that I sort of got involved in a lot of these things is because I really found myself gravitating towards a lot of the personalities. And as much as I thought I had things to say about, you know, these phenomena, I just wanted to have a chat with some of these folks as well. Yeah, honestly, when I, I did a podcast some ages ago, uh, I ran it for about six years. And I have to say that the reason I did it was I just wanted an excuse to call people up and have a chance to talk to certain people, you know, and I did it under the guise of a podcast when it was completely, totally 100% selfish. And, and, and that continues to this day. This is selfish what I'm doing here, getting a chance to talk to you. Yeah. When you can make your, your, your own desires and productivity line up, that's where, that's where life really sings in my experience. I agree. Agreed. Hey, I have a list in front of me. And there's three books. One is called A Trojan Feast, and the subtitle is The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. That came out in 2015. This is the first of th your three books, soon to be four books. And that, that fourth book may turn into four or five. But here, let's just give us a little quick rundown of the, your first book, A Trojan Feast. Well, I sort of always grew up uh, a kid who was interested in a lot of these phenomena, although I wasn't nearly as well-read as, as I am now. Uh, and I remember finding certain little bits and pieces of mythological and folkloric, and, you know, not to use those terms pejoratively, but in terms of also, you know, the experiencer uh, accounts, I always found little tidbits of them that stuck in my mind. And one of them that really stuck in my mind was this thing that if, this belief that if you took food in the fairy kingdom, you were doomed to stay with them forever. And that was always something that, for whatever reason, just really stuck with me. And 
I remember distinctly uh, sitting down to read uh, J. Robert Alley's Raincoast Sasquatch, which is a fantastic book on the Bigfoot phenomena. And at one point mentioning that some of the tribes in Alaska believe that if you accept food from the Bookwuss, which is one of their Sasquatch analogs, you'll be trapped with the Bookwuss forever. And I said, huh, that's interesting. That's a neat little parallel. Somebody should write a book about that. And I sort of waited about two weeks, and after Nick Redfern didn't crank a book out on that, <laughs> I, I said to myself, well, if nobody else is going to do it, maybe I should. And then it's been all sort of downhill from there. Um, I wrote a Trojan Feast. I feel like it's far enough out from the job that I had at the time. I wrote a, a Trojan Feast during the summer at my job at the University of Georgia because it was really quiet around there, and I just sort of wrote it in between doing other stuff because I generally didn't have that much to do in the summer. And was released in 2015 through Anomalous Books, and since then it's just sort of all snowballed uh, out, of, out of control. The central conceit of the book is to take a look at the role of food and drink in anomalous encounters, specifically aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch, and how those compare and contrast, and if maybe we can learn something deeper about these phenomena as a whole uh, by looking at something that's small and seemingly inconsequential. Agreed. Yeah. And then, I mean, the offering of food, I mean, that's right out of the Garden of Eden. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a gesture laden with symbolism and the role that food plays in our lives worldwide, culturally speaking, is, uh, is just absolutely profound. I mean, I, I saw an interview with uh, Joaquin Phoenix the other night talking on, I believe it was, uh, not Jimmy Fallon, but, uh, one of the late night shows. He was speaking about losing weight for uh, the role in his, his 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 new movie, and he said that you know after after a while people start asking you out to dinner, and if you're not eating or drinking, you kind of just don't want to hang out because so much of our social structure is based around eating and drinking. And you know if you look back through history, there's a lot of uh, social and uh, cultural weight to a lot of these gestures. So sort of unpacking the offering of food in these encounters, particularly fairy and alien encounters. Um, and looking at how, you know, what does that, what does that, um, the act of offering mean, but also what types of substances might this be? What purpose might this serve both from a, a literal standpoint and from a, from a symbolic standpoint as well? The last supper. Yeah. I mean, there's symbolism We're we're in a culture laden with this kind of symbolism. Hey, let's, the snowball is rolling downhill and <laughs> yes. it's picking up more snow. <laughs> And the Brimstone Deceit, and the subtitle to that one is An In-Depth Examination of Supernatural Secrets, Otherworldly Odors, and Monstrous Miasmas. And that came out one year later in 2016. So you are carrying the mantle of, of Nick Redfern. I mean, it's not once a month you're putting them out, but <laughs> right. once a year for the two years, that's pretty darn good. Yeah, um, I, I, I sort of, when I get with a subject, it actually... From from the moment I think of an idea to the time I'm actually holding the book is just absolute torture because about 30% of my mental capacity is always thinking about that at any given time until it's until it's you know finished and it's you know on the table in front of me. Um, the brimstone deceit was sort of a natural outgrowth of a Trojan feast because you know talking about um, talking about food and drink you automatically talk about taste which is incredibly inextricably connected to smell. And I've always found it really interesting how a lot of these different phenomena, again, particularly, well, actually all sorts of paranormal, quote-unquote, phenomena, but uh, UFOs, uh, the, you know, the alien contact experience, uh, some, some demon encounters, some ghost encounters, Sasquatch encounters, all talk about the smell of 
brimstone or sulfur. And a lot of people, I, I, you know, it's sort of, I, I went back and forth trying to figure out a title for that book because the brimstone deceit almost sounds like some sort of, you know, chick tract inspired conservative Christian sort of book. And that's not, Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. That's not at all the, the tack that I take with it because if you look at the history of, of sulfur, uh, it, 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 it's a lot more complicated than just, you know, hell smells like sulfur. So actually looking at perhaps if there might be some sort of purpose to the reason that all that's, this particular odor is found in a lot of these encounters and also looking at, you know, other smells. It's not just about the smell of, of sulfur, but about a lot of the other smells that are noted, like ozone, smells of cinnamon, smell, you know, floral smells, um, smells, and especially in, you know, spirit encounters, smells of tobacco or perfume, things like that. And uh, just trying to, you know, trying to parse out what did this person mean? Because a lot of times when we describe smell, we're not really describing a smell as accurately as we could. So this phenomenon called tip of the nose as sort of a play on the idea of tip of the tongue. And uh, just sort of looking at uh, trying to identify what are the most common odors that people notice. And again, if, if there's something objective to that, I don't go down the everything is demons route at all. <laughs> um, but I do think it's interesting that a lot of these, these, uh, these uh, encounters feature this, the odor of, of sulfur or sulfur compounds as well. Yes, and now just this heads up, folks. These are big, thick books. Both of these books are, are they are extremely compelling, and there's nothing like, I don't think you had to milk the subject to get this these things filled. I mean, these books seem to stand on their own. Yeah, so so A Trojan Feast was 60,000 words. Brimstone Deceit was 80,000 words. Uh, I think the my latest one is also 80,000 words. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it, it's it was sort of the number of omissions in each of these each of these books just to make it, you know, something reasonable that you could read uh, is, is pretty substantial. You know, I, I tried to compile as many things as I could. Even then it was just a, a wealth of wealth of riches. So as with anything in studying anomalies, it's hard to quantifiably say this is the most, you know, this is the most common smell or this is the most common food that's that's exchanged. You just sort of do your best and you sort of eyeball it and admit that it's not statistically rigorous, but you just do your best. But yeah, there's, there's plenty of uh, stuff in these encounters. You know, some people have have said that uh, I should do a book on, like, touch or something, and I'm like, I don't know if I can quantify that. Because almost every encounter, you know, I would say almost every encounter features some sort of odor, or, you know, even if there's an absence of an odor, that's, I mean, that's still, I think, significant in some ways as well. So, yeah, it was just, especially with the second book, Brimstone Deceit, it was just a wealth of riches, embarrassment of riches. And that brings us to the third book, The Thieves of the Night, and the subtitle is A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions, and that came out last year in 2018. Now, this, to me, it's standing on the shoulders of the two books, because a lot of the first and second book dealt with the fairy lore, and you you really took the fairy lore, comparing and contrasting the fairy lore specifically about, well, like, you kind of, you kind of you kind of spread it out a little thinner and you you, know, you go down some different alleys there, but it's mostly about the child abductions. Right. So I, I spoke about fairy lore for whatever reason, uh, fairy lore, especially, I mean, it's a worldwide phenomena, little, little people, mythological little people, but for some reason, the fairy lore of the British Isles has always been extremely compelling to me. And, uh, I, I don't know why I can't really put a, put a pin in it. It's not like I have a proud Gaelic family or anything along those lines. But uh, I, I wrote quite a bit about the fairy lore in A Trojan Feast and did not get to dive into that quite as much as I wanted to in The Brimstone Deceit. So when it came time for me to sort of put together another book, 
I said, let's 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 really dive back into the fairy lore. So this is definitely the the heaviest on that, and it's it's it took me to some dark places uh, with the subject matter, because I think that if you talk about this, I mean there there's some there's some places that it leads you that are very uncomfortable, and uh, the irony that I was a dad expecting twins <laughs> at the time that I was writing this is not at all lost on me. Um, so there were some moments when I was writing this where I was like, do I really want to? go with this. I mean, there are some sensitive issues. There are, you know, issues of, uh, you know, I try not to dwell on them too much, but there are issues of infanticide and, you know, uh, human abduction and, uh, you know, uh, you know, molestation from humans. Like these are, these are things that we deal with. And, but, uh, but looking at this through sort of a, a historical perspective of how, you know, you can look, you can trace the theme of, of child abduction all the way back to at least, uh, Lilith in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew lore, all the way through, you know, the fairy lore and, uh, and into the modern UFO contact experience. I mean, that's the number of experiencers who say that they have begun their contact with uh, extraterrestrial beings uh, it, at a young age is, is pretty, pretty significant. Um, and also just looking at worldwide motifs. So there's an entire chapter of the book dedicated to looking at, you know, what does Oce Oceania say about child abduction, what does, uh, what does Africa, African culture say about it? What do indigenous North American cultures say about it? And there are some pretty startling, again, similarities that you find. I find myself more interested in the similarities of a lot of these things than their actual uh, veracity. What I find compelling about studying anomalies is not necessarily whether or not we can prove case A or case B is true, but the number of similarities that you find across different cultures, different experiencers, different accounts that's where I, that's what i find really compelling so you're playing the role of the comparative mythologist in and then we would say that the ufo contact experience is part of our modern mythology i think so and again i i, I tend to use terms like mythology especially not necessarily meaning that it's not true i mean i the way that i tend to look at things i, I think sort of is simpatico with the way that you look, you look at things as well, is that things can be, the, 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 the subjective has become a dirty word to a lot of our society, and I think that it's an extremely important word and it's an extremely important perspective that we've sort of ignored for a long time. Something can be not necessarily objectively true, but subjectively true. Things can have kernels of truth in them. And this is without ruling out that things are objectively true, but a lot of these experiences can have a fundamental truth to them that transcends our sort of rote dualistic concepts of what is real and what isn't. You know, I think of, I often cite uh, the work of Patrick Harper, who is a fantastic philosopher who wrote, for me, one of my fundamental texts that I go to when I think about the paranormal, it's called Daemonic Reality. And in it, he mentions that you can see a romantic film that is not, uh, you know, it can feature a romance between two people who never existed and the romance never happened because they're fictional, but it can be the truest thing that you've ever seen in terms of the way that it presents those relationships and the way they unfold. It's sort of like gonzo mythology in, a, in that sense, I guess. Well, agreed. And that's the, that's the challenge in all this is that we are being presented with symbology. We are being presented with mythic storylines in a way with, you know, woven into the UFO contact experience. That is, um, you know, separate from from our day to day reality, 
And that at the same time, you know, it's got elements that are real. It certainly has elements that are unreal. And then when you get right down to it and the the screen memory aspect, right, where the, the beings themselves certainly seem to be able to distort or change or present us with something that just simply didn't happen, but they're presenting it like I'm going to go right to the owl, that people will be presented with imagery of owls you know, out a window when under hypnosis, perhaps they will say that I was looking at a gray alien. So they are distorting our memories for a purpose. I, you know, we can argue what that purpose might be, but they are doing it for some sort of purpose. And one way to frame that would be they are doing it so that the experience is painted with a symbolic brush, let's say. I am in complete agreement. And for anybody who isn't familiar with my work or sort of my opinions, I am 100% convinced that there is a very objective component and that humankind is being contacted by a non-human intelligence of some sort. Where I tend to sort of fall out of step with a lot of uh, modern research is especially this current trend of technological fetishism that we see looking at UFO videos and videos of, you know, of, of what people automatically assume are quote-unquote craft in the sky, is that I have a problem when they look at those we need a scientific approach to these sort of things, right? I have a problem when that's the only approach that's looked at because there is this rich, robust, like you said, symbolic history, symbolic meaning. There's meaning behind these things that I feel like if you're just looking at and examining video footage and trying with the idea that it's automatically a, you know, a nuts and bolts spacecraft, you know, containing aliens, you're missing this rich history and this rich repetitive aspect of the human experience that pulls upon archetypes, that pulls upon symbolism, that pulls upon mythology, that pulls upon legends, that pulls upon the human experience. And I I feel like a lot of the discussion, at least in 2019, 2018 lesser to extent, but it sort of reached a boiling point, a lot of the discussion in the UFO community in 2019 has completely jettisoned a lot of that for some sort of hope of an objective truth, some sort of nugget of truth given to us by the U.S. government. And I just think that's it's a bit of a fool's errand, honestly. And if it's not, it it still is not an enriching experience, I don't think. Carl Jung wrote a book called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. And things seen in the sky just shows up over and over, whether they're angels or, you know, some some Indian folklore of the phoenix bird or something. At this point, I need to take our very first break. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back with my guest, Joshua Cutchin, and we are talking about his trilogy of books. And most uh, specifically right now, we are talking about Thieves in the Night, a book that... Now, this is a question I want to ask. Now, this book is pretty dark. Yes, yes. Now, do you, now it's funny because I did the thing that I do sometimes when when I got this book, I opened it up in the middle and I just kind of uh, didn't read it in linear form. I, I read it kind of back to front and front to back and I cherry picked what I was reading. And it was very interesting for whatever reason, the stuff I was picking out wasn't the dark stuff. I didn't get to the dark stuff till till after sort of rolling around the book for a while. And so my initial thought was, well, this is a really magical book. And I mean, there is that side to it. Well, you know, if, it's interesting. Um, while I think that you can acknowledge that some of the things that these entities do to children are not consensual and therefore frightening and 
perhaps dark. There is a trend in the book where the most horrific things, and this sounds almost cliche at this point, but the most horrific things are the things that humans do to do to children. You know, one of the things that I talk about extensively in the book is the concept of the the fairy changeling. There really hasn't been a good English source book on changeling lore. Um, and there really hasn't been sort of a de facto, like you can go to this book and learn all about all you want to about changelings in English. Uh, that they're, The only one that really comes to mind is Der Wechselbalk, and there's like just a couple of copies in print, and they're all in German. So that, that was partially the function of this, was to sort of do a comprehensive look at the concept of the fairy changeling, which if anybody's unfamiliar with this, this has become sort of a trope in a lot of, a lot of uh, fantasy and, uh, and even horror uh, fiction. It's the idea that one of the fairies, one of the good folk, one of the elves, the little people, would take a newly born human child, an infant, and exchange something for the infant. Now, this served a couple of different purposes. What the child was is sort of up for debate. The, what, what they left behind was either an, a fairy baby, an elderly fairy, or a stump that was cloaked to look like a, like a, uh, like a child. The idea was that the fairies were taking children to sort of beef up their own lineage and put some new blood in their ranks while simultaneously if they left behind a fairy baby the fairy baby would be nursed by human milk because fairy food was essentially a sham so this was sort of a very rampant fear amongst uh amongst people as late as the mid 19th century um <clears throat> there uh and to to combat this there arose a variety of really absolutely despicable uh, methods to sort of get rid of the changeling. The idea was that if you torture the changeling enough, it would return your child because it didn't want to see one of its own being tortured. But what this happened to encourage in reality, not to say that there wasn't perhaps some sort of objective reality to that, and I sort of try to parse that out in the book, but what happened is this really sort of condoned culture of infanticide, especially in places like Ireland, there's one really sobering statistic that uh, I keep on coming back to because it's really, really stuck in my stuck in my head. Um, there's a book uh, by a scholar named Elaine Farrell who wrote uh, about infanticide in Ireland from 1850 to 1900. So it's a 50-year period that she surveyed, and she only looked at cases of children who were killed under three years old, and she found 4,645 cases. Good lord. <laughs> In a fifty-year period, and this is only the, this is only things that were reported in the public record that she could she could parse out. Yes, and it's an island of the size of Indiana. It's a it's a staggering number, and you can't look at that and say again. I think that there's an objective aspect to the changeling phenomena. I think that's probably perhaps more metaphysical than physical, but you can't look at a statistic like that and the changeling tradition and not see that there's there's some sort of cultural reinforcement, some sort of cultural sort of uh, tacit approval of, of this for numerous reasons. You know, I mean, a lot of the changeling descriptions read like uh, disabled or mentally ill children. So you didn't want to have them because they wouldn't contribute on the farm. Perhaps, you know, you didn't have, you had too many mouths to feed. So it's just, it's, it's a really, so that, those are some of the places in the book where I just, I had to go there and I powered through it and I'm like, let's get back to, <laughs> let's get back to something different because you, you, again, it just it does take you in some dark places, and there are some accounts of some of the methods that were used to retrieve your own child uh, from the fairies by torturing this changeling, and some of them are just absolutely, you know, atrocious. Everything from poisoning to beating to burning their toes to literally putting them in an oven, and it's just... 
awful stuff, dark stuff. And but again, to, to circle it back around to your original point, this is all stuff that is sort of the human-sanctioned lore around this. And if you look at how, I mean, the changeling motif expresses itself very strongly in the modern contact experience, but um, if you look at sort of the modern contact experience, it doesn't quite have that sort of, that, that intensive, that, those intensive and overtones, especially in terms of what these intelligences do to, uh, to uh, experiencers. It's, it's always the humans that are perpetrating the most evil, which, again, is a cliche. Yes, yes. Well, and at the same time, I have talked to many, many women who have uh, had pregnancies that disappeared under very unusual circumstances. Oftentimes, no, oftentimes without being sexually active, they will have a pregnancy. And, I mean, that's we're getting right into the core of the New Testament and and the Blessed Virgin. You know, this is something you don't want to mess with, the the human psychology of the virgin birth is is you know at the core of western civilization as this as this grand miracle so i mean i don't know what it would be like to be a little catholic girl and have a ufo contact experience in ireland and have to try to come to terms with with a missing pregnancy under those circumstances well and it's what's really interesting is that you know in, in our in our in the west and sort of the the framework that we've built around whatever this phenomena is, we've gravitated towards the, the extraterrestrial narrative, which again may or may not be literally true, but the idea of spirits being able to interfere with pregnant women uh, is, is an extremely common motif throughout the world. I mean, there's you've got the Walla of Papua New Guinea who are said to inhabit streams, so if you step in the stream, you might offend the Walla. Uh, you also have the, uh, the Duppies, in Jamaican folklore, who are known to cause what is known as false belly, which is basically, you know, a miscarriage. Um, and similarly, you have the Abiku, of, who uh, are um, who are a spirit among the Yoruba of Nigeria, who literally sort of take, they basically get rid of the mother's fetus and live in its place. And when they're born, it looks like a human child, but the idea is that uh, this is a spirit born into the human world that is uh, designed to sort of amass as much material wealth as it can before returning uh, back to its back to the spirit world. So it's, it's, a, it's a recurring motif, and I, I, I see a lot of this stuff. Again, I absolutely believe uh, what these experiencers uh, have gone through, but it's interesting to sort of compare that to, to what seems, it seems to be something that's gone, that, that's happened through human experience time and again, way before we actually had the idea of, you know, little green men and flying saucers. Yes, no, I'll just, this is something that has happened to me a few times. One time quite, like I sat on the phone and had to, you know, the woman I was talking with broke down into tears where she explained that she had been, she was pregnant. She went to the doctor. The doctor confirmed it. She got up to her first trimester approximately, went back to the doctor knowing something was wrong. The doctor found out that she was no longer pregnant. And then the doctor came down hard on her and and, and accused her with some fervor, let's say, like he was very angry at this woman for aborting the child without telling him. And she was, she had no way to answer him. He said straight up, this child has been aborted. You aborted the child. And she did nothing of the sort. So she was stuck in this place where she was made to feel terribly, terribly guilty about something that she didn't even do. I've heard that story a few times, one time, you know, through tears. And this is, this is 
at the core, I mean, many people will say, I'm not sure if this is correct, but some researchers will say the reason that these beings are interacting with people here on Earth, this might be taken as as a, you know, a um, extraterrestrial visitation. The reason they are here on Earth is to create genetically enhanced children and then take them away. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's a it's a very sad story, and it's something that I've I've been saying for a long time is that it's completely taboo in all places of society to blame the victim, except when it comes to alien abduction or anything surrounding that to use that term that phenomena in which case it's expected that you you know shame and make fun of the victim you know a lot of the skeptics will point to a lot of stuff there are a variety of different conditions that can that can present as a sort of missing fetus um, including secondary amenorrhea uh, hydatiform moles uh, bladded ovum even even something that's called like false pregnancy which supposedly People show a presump- signs of presumptive pregnancy, but there isn't actually, you know, a, a fertilized egg. Um, but I, you know, th- those all these things are pretty darn rare, and I would love to see the incidence of these conditions put up against a graph of you know women who believe that they've had you know missing uh, missing missing fetuses, missing pregnancies. If you look at the if you look at the literature in regards to the fairy folklore, it, it, it parallels what you just mentioned to a T. This idea that there is a race that is dying, that is sickly, that is in need of new genetic material, um, that is seeking interaction with human beings to sort of boost their bloodline. Um, you know, it's interesting. You, there's this recurring theme in a lot of these baby presentations wherein, you know, an entity aboard a, aboard a craft will show a hybrid child to a mother and oftentimes will not only encourage them to hold the child, but to nurse the child, which they will do sometimes even when they're not lactating. And uh, it's interesting to, to see the importance that's placed on milk in a lot of fairy lore. I mean, the number of stories that you find where it's all about getting that human milk into a fairy baby. That's one of the reasons for changelings is just that those stories are legion. And again, the idea was that if you look at sort of uh, my first book, A Trojan Feast, talked about how whenever fairies would give you fairy food, it would look delicious, but it was actually detritus cloaked in glamour. It was twigs, it was leaves, it was worms, it was grass, it was whatever. That was made to look attractive. So in this sense, fairy food is always a sham. Therefore, fairy milk is a sham too. So the idea that there's a need for genetic sustenance from human beings, which I think really emphasizes the fact that and this might be a little bit a little bit uh controversial to some people but I think this emphasizes the fact that this these phenomena do not happen in a vacuum I think that I, I think that you know if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one around does anyone hear it well if <laughs> if there aren't any humans around <laughs> does the UFO contact experience exist I really don't I'm not sure if it does I think that we're so intrinsically tied into what's going on here that it's almost symbiotic with whatever is actually going on. I agree. We can jump back to this after our second and final break. For free Dreamlanders, you'll hear a few more commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and my guest this week 
is Joshua Cutchin, and we are talking about his books, most particularly his third book, Thieves in the Night. And the subtitle is A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions, and child abductions within the lore of the fairy, within the lore of the UFO contact experience, as well as in the lore of Bigfoot. And even, and and we'll get into this in a little bit, um, the uh, 411, the books that David Pilates has been putting out, these missing persons reports. But first, I got to ask one question of you. Mm-hmm. Give me your off-the-cuff definition of what an archetype is. My off, yeah. <laughs> I, that's a tough one. I know. I recognize that, like you know, philosophy students will stay up late with the bong in their dorm and try to come up with a good answer to that exact question. So I don't want to, you know. So you can wing it a little bit. We're not. No, you're not going to get in trouble if you don't. If you don't uh, answer it the way the philosophy professor might want you to answer it. I would say they are motifs of behavior and action that are so fundamental to the human experience that they appear in various cultures without cultural cross transmission. I didn't even look that up. I know it sounds like I looked that up, but I <laughs> right on. Good for you. It's, that's, that's that's as best as I can get. You know, that's so some people pretty darn good. Yes, I, I have some people who you know you run into some people who talk about like the trickster as if it's some sort of entity, and you're like, well, that's not it's not quite what it is. You know, it's almost like an an, an epiphenomenon, an expression of different behavior that sort of creates these things, I think. And I would say the owl is an archetype. It is a symbol. So people are interacting not with a bird with big eyes, but they are interacting with an ancient symbology that is still playing its role in our modern times. Yes, I would agree with that as well. Good. We talked about myth a little bit earlier. And then one of the things I'll just say is that in the dictionary, myth, if you looked myth up in the dictionary, like the first definition is fairy tale, something that is false, something that is fake. And it is not parsed out very well in the dictionary. Uh, someone like Joseph Campbell does a beautiful job of saying that there's a there's a reason that these myths exist and they play an important role in our lives. Yes, the myth is not literally true, but it is symbolically vital and important to to how we lead our lives or how we how the best way we can lead our lives a better way we can lead our lives that's a roadmap that that we depend on in a in a world without especially now in a world where mythology and mythic tropes are are dismissed outright as false it is a disenchanted world that we've created for ourselves that's for sure yes and here let me just say this but we you and I are are writing enchanted books well, hopefully, I mean that's that, that's part of the goal is to to get people to to question assumptions and to I mean you know it's, it's sort of part of my verbose conclusion to or flowery I guess I should say conclusion to Thieves in the Night is that you know even if something like fairy lore even if fairies aren't real they imbue the forest with something a little bit different you know if you actually are aware of them and think of them even if there aren't extraterrestrials they just just the idea that they might be out there imbues you with a one sense of wonder when you look at the night sky that you might not have had before. It, it, it's sort of almost as if it's, uh, uh, it's there to give meaning to a lot of these things that we in our current society have downplayed as being meaningless. And I think we are hungry. We are hungry. That's my sense for this deeper meaning. I mean, we're watching, you know, these Marvel comic movies, which are steeped in a kind of computer-generated mythology, but it is mythology nonetheless, these these heroes. And they're extremely popular, and we are hungry, yes. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. I would argue that the uh, the sort of, I mean, 
you look back to where it was like it was when I was growing up, you know, if you look back 25 years or so, you know, the geeks were really undermined. And, you know, nowadays, Star Wars is as, as, as popular as football. And I think that the reason that the geeks have won that this aspect of the culture war, and they have, I mean, just look at, you know, media around you. I think the reason that the geeks have won is because people are, like you said, hungry for this, hungry for this sense of wonder that they've had stripped for them. In the book, Thieves in the Night, you address the issues of missing people, modern-day accounts of missing people. That's folded right in there as, let's say, a new form of, I don't want to say mythology, but there's clues given within the books of David Polites and his 411 books. Um, and, I, and anyone listening to this probably has a pretty good working idea of who David Polites is and, and his research. Am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Uh, Pilates, I think is, is so you're, you're, you're close. You're, you're, you're not saying Pilates, which sounds like David Pilates yoga okay. studio. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, you, you don't shy away from that in your books. Well, it's interesting. If you look at some of the stuff that occurs time and again, in a lot of the missing 411 literature, it again has very strong precedence in fairy lore. Uh, you can just do a, a reading of uh, Walter Evans Wentz's Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, which is a fantastic book that's free online. Go read it if you haven't, UFO knots. <laughs> it's great. Um, but uh, you can you can just pick up things from that book that are mirrored almost one for one in in uh, in the work work of David Politis. Now I say this hesitantly because the missing four one one literature or cases rather. Uh, do function sort of as a paranormal Rorschach test. Uh, if you are into UFOs, it looks like alien abduction. If you're into Sasquatch, it looks like Bigfoot picking off people. If you're into time warps, it's time warps. And if you're, you know, I'm into fairies, so what do I see in there? I see fairies. But I think that the the lore behind fairies is more parsimonious at describing what's going on in the missing 411 stuff than a lot of other things. No, again, not to say that I think that... I'm not sure if there's an objective reality to quote-unquote fairies, but I think whatever it's describing and whatever the contact experience is describing in the modern times are almost identical. And if you look at sort of the uh, fairy lore vis-a-vis -vis the work of David Pilatus and Missing 401, uh, you find a lot of striking similarities. Uh, the uh, ability for people to wander or not know where they are finds uh, precedent in being pixie-led, which was this idea that uh, a fairy could lead you to a spot that normally you would know exactly where you were, but you would look around and the surroundings would be unfamiliar. Similarly, I think there's a parallel there between that and experiencers who find themselves uh, taken aboard craft after being compelled to travel down some sort of deserted country lane that they've never been down before. You can also find precedent, or a comparison rather, in uh, the amount of people who'd go disappearing around boulder fields. Boulder fields were one of the chief domains of the fairy folk. The incidents of... Uh, search and rescue operations being impeded by storms. Well, fairies often traveled in storms. Uh, fairy squalls were a thing. And even in Newfoundland, they still talk about fairy squalls today. Um, the, uh, the inability for dogs to track, or the resistance, rather, for dogs to track uh, those who have gone missing. Uh, dogs were afraid of fairies. Uh, the incidence of certain bright colors being worn. Well, depending on your culture, colors like red or green were offensive to the fairies, and if you wore them out, you would probably 
disappear. <laughs> the fairies would probably take you. Um, the propensity for people in missing 411 reports to disappear around berry bushes. It was a very, very common thing to be warned in a lot of Celtic countries, especially, of berry picking, being warned against it, because that was a place where you would uh, encounter fairies. There's actually an entire essay in a collection called, uh, I believe it's called uh, The Good People, I believe is what it's called. A lot of these names sort of start to blend together, but uh, it's by uh, Peter Nervais, and it's an entire essay on how this idea of berry picking uh, was imported from Ireland over to Newfoundland, and it's basically just a bunch of a list of different encounters of people who went berry picking and disappeared, went berry picking and saw a little person, went berry picking and disappeared, and then came back and said that they had seen a little person. Um, all these things you see time and again. And there were certain prophylactics that you could use to prevent yourself from being taken while berry picking. A piece of stale bread in the pocket, maybe a, some, a gift of some sort to give the fairy folk when you see them. Hey, just let me interrupt. Did, sure. Did, when you were in Ireland, you were in Ireland recently? Uh, about two, year, two years ago this month, and it, it makes my heart ache every time I see those photos because I want to be back there right now. <laughs> did, did you put a piece of stale bread in your pocket? Oh, so we, we stayed, um, we stayed al almost exclusively. Uh, exclusively actually at bed and breakfast and at every breakfast i would pocket a couple of rolls <laughs> so whenever i went to a fairy fort or something i would i would have something to leave behind one time i found oh so you would actually leave the leave that there's an offering of some yeah sort. um yeah so because uh you know just it's there's a, there's a common belief that i'm led to believe i've been led to understand is in ireland which is you know i don't believe in fairies but i'm scared of them so <laughs> so i made it a point whenever i would if in case I was transgressing in any way to leave something behind. Um, there was one fairy fort where I found myself, uh, it was like one of the last days that we were there and I hadn't picked up any extra bread because we hadn't planned on you know looking for anything. And we went to another historical site and you look at it and after you've seen a couple of these, you can identify them just from sight alone. And uh, I was like, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's a fairy fort. So I was like, I'm going to go up there, but I don't... And, and what are you seeing here? Give me, give, give, fill us in. What are, what are you looking at? Well, there are a couple of different things that you look for. One is just a copse of trees um, in the middle of a field that's untouched because it was generally expected to be a, a place that uh, was... You didn't want to mess with it because the fairies would, would uh, make reprisals on you. So generally speaking, a copse of trees, oftentimes if you in, inspect it closer, you'll find a stone, a small, like maybe one rock high stone circle encompassing that copse of trees in the middle of a field. That's a dead giveaway. Um, another is any sort of raised mound with a copse of trees on it, or sometimes not with a copse of trees on it, depending on, you know, if, if there are cattle grazing there. Um, sometimes you'll find uh, fairy forts where there's a ditch and then an inner mound. Sometimes you'll find it where there's an outer ring and then an inner ring. Um, there are a couple of different variations on it, and then you can also get into the fact that uh, that a lot of these uh, a lot of stone forts that you find in Ireland are often referred to as fairy forts as well. So stacked stone forts that you'll see, um, which is sort of a ties into this idea that was quite popular uh, back in the eight, back in the nineteenth century that uh, fairies were actually some sort of ancestral memory of deceased indigenous peoples, which. I kind of am sympathetic to nowadays with the added caveat that perhaps there's a, there's, you know, a, for lack of a better term, a supernatural element. So it's not this indigenous, this, this, you know, cultural memory of, of, uh, indigenous peoples that got wiped out, but perhaps it's literally the spirits of these indigenous people that got wiped out. That's sort of where I'm going. And there's, that's an entire rabbit hole that we could go down <laughs> if you'd like. Um, because, you know, a lot of these, for example, the Picts, uh, uh, in the British Isles were considered to be shorter than, the uh, invading Romans, and uh, they 
they had no knowledge of iron, uh, iron weapons, and so they feared them, which, again, fairies oh, tend to fear interesting. iron. Okay. And the idea is that they were... Well, the, and the idea the idea that was really popular amongst uh, anthropologists, it's sort of fallen out of vogue, but again, I said I'm a bit sympathetic to it with a paranormal spin. The idea is that uh, these people were literally driven underground, and a lot of these fairy forts will have souterrains or what are known as sort of uh, tunnels underneath the structures where they would either hide or store food. The idea is that these peoples were literally driven underground, just as the fairy, yes, fairyland is said to be underground. They were literally, literally driven underground and would actually pop up and steal babies to help replenish their dying race as they're being sort of driven off the land by, their, by the invaders. It's a, it's, it's a pretty interesting, imp it's, it's not quite airtight, but it's got a lot of strengths going for it. And like I said, I, I kind of am sympathetic towards that with the added caveat of it being... Uh, of uh, there actually not being an ancestral memory, but like no, this is actually spirits of of the restless uh, native dead. I think that there's something to be said for that, and you can see you know similar parallels here in the Americas. I mean, you know what's what's the trope of so many horror films? It's built on an Indian burial ground. You know, it's, it's, I think that there's something interesting to that because those fairy forts. I mean, you go up to them, and a lot of them are spooky. I visited a couple at night, and it's just <laughs> they're, they're they're eerie places to be for sure. Agreed. Agreed. Hey, I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to frame it in a way that I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, challenging you or anything. Jacques Vallée wrote two books, uh, Passport to Magonia, which was released in 1969. And the other was Dimensions. And that was part of a trilogy of books that was released in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And that book was sort of a reworking of ideas that were presented by Dr. Vallée in his initial book, Passport to Magonia. But um, so those two books cover the, the comparing and contrasting the modern UFO contact experience to the ancient Celtic fairy lore. What, in, what makes your book relevant in light of, of his groundbreaking work now, maybe 40 years ago? Well... That's actually a really good question. <laughs> um, I, I would say that something like A Trojan Feast definitely deals into an aspect of it more than uh, Passport to Magonia did. Uh, I think that I think I think that I think the Valet made a, a an excellent cake, right? I can't I, I can't just uh, put icing on a plate, right? I've got to have a cake. <laughs> so what I've done would not exist um, would not exist without Valet's cake. But I, I feel like something like Thieves in the Night is coming back and doing sort of the fondant and the icing and, and sort of stacking some stuff. I feel like it's adding some flourishes. I'm not entirely sure if he realized quite how parsimonious uh, the comparison between fairy lore and alien lore is. I mean, I, I found some stuff that uh, he did not necessarily talk about in uh, Magonia because, I mean, you know, uh, Celtic... Folklore wasn't necessarily his ballywick, uh, or European folklore isn't necessarily something that he was, you know, it didn't really do an incredibly deep dive in. One of the things that I found really fascinating is that uh, I've long held that if you can find something in fairy lore, you'll find it in alien lore and vice versa. Or I should say that if you can find something in fairy lore, you'll find it in the modern contactee experience. It's probably a more uh, intellectually honest way to put it. With, with uh, two exceptions. One of those was trying to reconcile the hybridization angle, which is sort of what Thieves in the Night created. But the other thing that I would always had trouble reconciling was alien implants. If, if these two things are so similar, why isn't there a precedent for alien implants in fairy lore? 
And that's what I discovered after digging for a while, uh, the fairy blast, which was this idea. So blast is where we get the, etymologically, we get the words blustery, and we also get the word blister. And the fairy blast was a great gust of wind that if you had offended the fairies, the fairies would send this bl blast of wind that would manifest a blister or a tumor on your skin. And in numerous historical sources, when this was cut open, people would find bits of iron. They would find bits of what looked like ceramics. They would find bits of bone. They would find all sorts of different things that were embedded under their skin that the fairies had blasted them with. Um... Similarly, which I found extremely compelling is, is uh, there's actually a, a tale from Newfoundland where a man was uh, had offended the fairies and got a hit of the fairy blast, and he said he started growing strings out of his fairy blast boil, which to me sounds strikingly like uh, Morgellons disease, which a lot of experiencers talk about uh, having. So, Correct. Yes, that was my first thought too. When uh, yeah. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is that um, I feel like, and, and it sounds like it sounds like I'm besmirching passport to Magonia, which I can't. That's, that's just not in my DNA. Um, but I feel like that was there was such a, an amazing foundation laid there. I wanted to I personally wanted to pick apart some of the some of the smaller things to see well how how close of a match is this? And I'm it's it's pretty darn close. And in case anybody's wondering, I'm not saying extraterrestrials are fairies and I'm not saying fairies are extraterrestrials, but I'm saying that I think these two things, these two sets of Folklore, again, not using that to cast aspersions on it being real or not, these two bodies of folklore are describing the same thing. They're describing the same phenomena, or at least similar phenomena or related phenomena. That's sort of what I want people to, to sort of take away from a lot of my writing as a whole. Now, you, this book, I just have to comment on this. Uh, there's 103 pages of footnotes and 25 pages of index. You really went to town. And it doesn't read like a, like a uh, scholarly text. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it is a very streamlined, delightful, readable book. And I think some academic texts can be deadly dull. This is not. Um, but it does have an academic uh, bend to its to the final <laughs> 150 pages here. <laughs> yeah, I, I've talked to some people who say that they get, you know, what is it, 330 pages into the book, and they're looking forward to reading more, and they're like, oh wait, there's <laughs> this is all footnote, you know, in notes and bibliography and uh, index. I mean, so I two sort of things have been my guiding philosophy with writing these all three of these books. And number one has been that you can be a grandmother who's never really read any of this stuff and you can pick it up and, and be able to understand it and get something out of it. Or you can be Mike Cleland and pick it up and get something out of it as well. Um, the idea that sort of trying to make it as accessible to as many people uh, on as many spectrums of, of interest as possible has been sort of something that I've been trying to do. But the other thing is to be really rigorous with sources um, and to make it clear that if there's a claim that is being made, it's very clear that it's my claim and it's coming from me. And if there's something that's said that uh, an experience that happened, if in you know 10 years it turns out that this person comes out and says that they were lying or, or there was a problem with the case, well, that wasn't me saying it. I'm just saying where I found it and where it came from. So some of it was a bit of an insurance policy, but also... Um, I found myself to be a bit of an endnote fetishist as, as as I've gone along doing this, because I think that 
I think that people do take these things more seriously when you when you make a claim and you say where it came from so that they can, if they are so inclined, follow up on that lead themselves. Um, so that's uh, I'm I'm a little bit proud of it and I'm a little bit ashamed of it as well because it's just it adds so much to the back of the book, but it's just like it's got to be there. Um, you know, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that my uh, my upcoming. Uh, actually, it's definitely going to be two volumes. My upcoming books, two-volume series with Timothy Renner. Um, he and I were discussing it, and I said, because uh, he, he asked me if I want to be a part of this project, and I said, well, I will, but we've got to do endnotes uh, because there's just, there's especially with a topic that, that like this next one, is, this next book is covering, there's going to be a lot of people wanting to snipe and wanting to take stuff down. You've got to say, hey, this isn't us saying it. This is where it came from. Find a problem with that source, whatever. But uh, this is, you know. Oh, here, let's, let's explain your book, the book with Timothy, who I know Timothy, and, and I, I want to get into this. So, yeah, please, this is the book. It's The working title is Where the Footprints End. Is that correct? Yes, Where the Footprints End. And, and we're aiming for a December release of Volume 1. And for the longest time, we thought it was going to be one book. But I looked at how many words I've written. And uh, to put in perspective, Thieves in the Night was 80,000 words and... I think my portion that I've written so far for this book, just my chapters, are about 90,000 words. So I'm like, Tim, this has got to be, this has got to be two volumes, which I know is sort of a pain, but we're trying to make it the definitive go-to book on high strangeness and Bigfoot reports. So as much as some people in ufology want to push back against the metaphysical, there's very, very little room for that in cryptozoology and, uh, and Bigfoot study. Uh, and if you look at... Oh, wait, wait, what do you mean there's very little room for that? My sense is, this is my sense directly. I mean, I have talked to many Bigfoot researchers, um, and I guess the ones that I'm hanging out with are, are very, very open to the, to the more mystical aspects. And exactly that. I have a friend, Ron Johnson, who lives in Utah, and he tells a story about following these Bigfoot tracks through the snow in Utah, which is not a place that you would associate with Bigfoot, but he has been covering a lot of Bigfoot cases in Utah and followed these footprints right out into the snow. And there was, there was nothing at all. They just did. They just ended right in this beautiful meadow, fresh snow. I will also add, I'm not saying anything out of sorts. Ron has been open with this. Ron has had direct UFO contact experiences. So here's someone who has, I'll just say it, has had abduction experiences with little gray beings and now he is immersed in Bigfoot research. Well, maybe I should qualify that a little bit. Yeah, so exactly where the footprints in. And I, 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 uh, I talked to, to, to Ron, a lovely, lovely gentleman. Um, I guess what I would say to walk that back a little bit is that the public face of Sasquatch study has failed to significantly move beyond the idea that we're dealing with a large ape in the woods. And I know of several uh, published researchers too, not only, you know, just field workers who actually do the actual work, but those, you know, but, uh, but also people who have written books and like to maintain this facade of, of being, uh, of being very level headed about the biological aspect of Bigfoot, who, if you get them very similar to what you've talked about at UFO conferences, Mike, if you get them to the bar and you, you know, give them a couple beers, they'll start talking about the weird stuff that they've seen. Um, but what Tim and I are finding in digging up this book is that, or digging up the research for this book, is that there is no shortage of material that seems to have been, 
I won't say deliberately suppressed, but pleasantly omitted. Um, some things that seem like they would be anomalies that would indicate hoaxes are just thrown out. I mean, I think of, uh, was I think that there's a story that, uh, that, that, that's told in the book where, um, Rene DeHinden, like one of the biggest Bigfoot researchers ever, um, was investigating a similar, uh, you know, where the footprints end style set of tracks. And, uh, it just, they just, the track line just stopped and, the investigator who was with him said, hey, maybe the Bigfoot flew away just as a joke. And DeHinden turned around and got in his car and left because he didn't even want to talk about the fact that this could be anything other than a big monkey. Um, there are other sort of classic cases that have a lot of the metaphysical stranger aspects thrown out of them. And one that comes to mind that we talk about uh, is the Ape Canyon story. And, you know, while it's sort of talked about well, the story is talked about ad nauseum about a group of miners near Mount St. Helens who had their cabin besieged by these giant hairy things throwing rocks at them. The, the story is talked about quite a bit, and while no one has actively tried to suppress the sort of metaphysical things surrounding the incident, um, it definitely is always, almost always omitted in every retelling of the Ape Canyon incident. And if you actually read the words of Fred Beck himself, who was present there, was actually his mining claim you find a number of anomalies. Um, Beck experienced a ports. Um, he experienced, he, he saw a... Uh, oh, give me, give me an example of an aport in this case. Uh, it was a pencil in one case. There was another object, but he experienced, he experienced a pencil that uh, I believe he was, he was in need of a pencil and it flashed into his hand, if, if memory serves correctly. Um, he claimed to have had psychic experiences all his life. He believed that what assailed his cabin, these Bigfoot were actually some sort of metaphysical psychic creatures. He found his mining claim by following a white arrow in the sky. Um, and uh, during the, uh, I believe there were, there were strange sounds of machinery underground uh, just prior to the Canyon incident. And they also found a set of Bigfoot tracks, just two footprints, boop, boop, on a sandbar that was, uh, I believe, 60 feet uh, from the, from the uh, in, you know, just in the middle of the, middle of the sandbar, in the middle of a river, 60 feet from anything else that could have obscured the tracks. Um, he said he said at the time that it almost looked like it was dropped down from the sky. And if you take a look at that and sort of the way that, you know, a lot of this Bigfoot stuff tends, tends to overlap in some ways with uh, UFO lore, and honestly, with again, with fairy lore, uh, it, it's, it's, it's something that I feel like really needed to, Tim and I felt like really needed to get a little bit more attention. So we're sort of trying to compile as many different things as we can. Uh, book one is going to be focused on folklore, it's going to look at uh, similarities between Bigfoot and uh, anomalous, or compare, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Connections between Bigfoot and uh, anomalous lights, Bigfoot and UFOs, Bigfoot and the contact experience, Bigfoot and fairies, Bigfoot and witches, Bigfoot and women in white. Sort of like this, you know, the archetype of the woman in white, which... Yes, yes, because that's something that shows up in, in the UFO contact experience and very rarely gets talked about. And it's it's a hallmark of the, uh, a hallmark of a lot of... Uh, fairy lore is this idea of, you know, the Dame Blanche. It's another, uh, it's a French uh, fairy specifically that's, that's this woman in white. Um, so it seems like another archetype at play there. And I, when Tim said that there was a connection between Bigfoot and, and women in white, I was like, I don't know if there's going to be much that's fine there, but he's, he's really done a yeoman's work and found some really fantastic. And, and I will also add that much of Timothy's research is like, how to say this, like is like stuff just arriving in his lap? Do people just send him stuff and just people come and tell him stories? Many of these seem to be 
you know, right around his home in, in Pennsylvania. He lives in a very odd part of the country for whatever reason. I don't know what it is, but, uh, but yeah, he, um, he has a podcast, Strange Familiars, which is easily one of my favorite shows that's out there. Um, I'd say that even if I wasn't working with him and, uh, he's, he's getting a lot of people talking to him now and coming to him with stuff. And yes, yeah, it falls in his lap and sometimes it, you know, it literally falls in his lap. I mean, I've, I spent some time with him, uh, just prior to the conference that I came to see with you to see you at, uh, where we went to a spot that was, you know, 20 minutes from his home that has had some really crazy light and, uh, Bigfoot phenomena around. It yes, as well. yes. Hey, let's so let's talk about this conference. It was a very small conference in Warwick, Rhode Island, and this is going back in April. Andrea and I, while driving, saw a UFO of some sort. This is a. I guess I should tell the story. So we're on our way to the conference to see you. Was this afterwards? No, no, on the way. So we were left upstate New York, and we're driving. This is before. Okay. Oh, that's right. We talked about this. Yeah. And and Suzanne and Jack, Suzanne, who has been a guest on this podcast series Suzanne Chancellor we were going to stay with Suzanne Chancellor for the first night and then be in a hotel after that at the event um, now this was also an event where I think the speakers outnumbered the guests so uh, which was a little of a bummer in one ways but then I guess I mean it was up all my friends basically so, <laughs> I mean you know Paulino and it was great yeah so um, you and Timothy and and Mike Stevens now so I'll here I'll try to tell the story quick because it's it's very visual, and I, I did a blog post on it on my blog. We're driving along. We're entering, getting very close to, to Providence, Rhode Island. We're, we're just, they, Suzanne and Jack live just outside of Providence. And we turn this corner, and we both kind of look up in the sky, and so we're like, what's, is that a cloud? Is that like, it was just a shade darker gray. It was, looked like a little fleck of a cloud. And this is on a, the busy freeway, and so we're kind of swerving around. And I may have told you this before, so we're turning the corners in uh, uh, along the highway, and so we'd kind of lose sight of it. We'd go in the trees. We'd get sight of it again, and it looked like a—and this was right near the airport. We were seeing big jets sort of passing through the air. So if this was like some sort of balloon or something like that, it was like—it was big, and it was way up there. And it looked like um, about the size of a billboard— like a giant billboard, but it was totally flat and it looked like it was kind of spinning and rotating a little bit. So imagine a billboard that's paper thin and it's way up there. So if it rotated just a little bit, you would see just the edge of the paper, let's say, and it would completely disappear and then reappear as it spun around. So it was thin enough that it would completely disappear. And we watched it for a while. And I kid you not, and Andrea and I both saw this, there was a single polka dot above it what it looked like was a nail in the sky with a big giant billboard hung by a fishing wire on that nail. There was a tiny polka dot of a nail tapped into the sky. So, and then we lost sight of it. And I, I recreated the image on my blog and I'll, maybe I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes there. That was the long story. That was the story of the UFO on the way to meet you at a UFO conference. It was faded. <laughs> It was faded in one sense, but at the same time, it was kind of like how, I don't know how to say this, like, like Andrea and I were a little bit like jaded, like, oh yeah, there's the UFO in the sky as we go to the UFO conference. So <laughs> also at this thing, which I want to talk about too, we went back to Suzanne's house at the end of the conference. We sat around and Suzanne said, here, let me get something. And she goes and pulls out like a big bag of forks and she sets them on the coffee table in the living room. 
And she kind of goes through this little thing, just like, just look at him, look at the neck. And we all played Yuri Geller. We all became Yuri Geller for a little bit. And we all bent the forks. Like they did the thing, like they, they just mushed like they were made out of Play-Doh or something like that. And I'm holding the bent fork, my bent fork in my hand as I'm telling you this story. Had you ever done anything like that before? No, no, I hadn't. And uh, yeah, to a, to a person, we all all were able to do it. My my bent forks are packed up. We're getting ready to move here. <laughs> so my, I, I, But I am in the room where I would have had my bent fork had I, had I still had it. But no, I'd never done anything quite like that. And it was really compelling. And at the same time, it just was the same thing. There was like this kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we just bent some forks and we just continued on with our little conversations. And there was a kind of like a, like a, like, how would I say it? Like nobody said, ta-da, in, in a way that the power of the event deserved. Well, I, th- I think that perhaps there, that's part of part and parcel for why it actually was able to happen so easily is, is the idea that we weren't so focused on the victory of whether or not we bent the fork that that actually probably made it a little bit easier as well. I agree. I agree. I mean, the idea that you know, just sort of placing less of an emphasis on it allowed us to actually overachieve. Like, and, and you could say the same thing about anything like that. Yeah, sure. Like if you wanted to run the mile, if you, the less you emphasize, put the emphasis on it, probably the better time you'll have kind of thing. So, but um, yeah, I just thought that was amazing. And I'm, I mean, like, ah, I'm holding this thing in my hand. Like it was, it's like really real. Like I cannot, I mean, if I really grip my teeth, I could unbend it right now, but that's not how it bent. It bent like it was made out of taffy or something. Yeah. And to clarify for people, these were not, these were not uh, cheap little uh, knives and forks. I, I believe that uh, Suzanne and, and, and Jack, they went uh, around to sort of yard sales and what not looking for really high quality heavy silverware is that cor- that's right right I, i'm not sure except but I, I know that they had a bag of of like old silverware and this was like old style silverware this had been from like by the 1950s or something when i'm holding in my hand maybe not i don't know but it's a big thick it's a big thick fork and it didn't bend at the skinniest part which is interesting it bent like a little bit you know at the fatter part yeah and and if when we if, when all of us tried to bend it you know beforehand really concentrating and trying to muscle it it never really it never worked for anybody. Yeah, she so Suzanne gave us a little a little coaching and she said, Okay, let's just like set an intention and she was very plain. There was nothing airy fairy about this. Just set an intention. Imagine bending the fork, rub the spot you want to bend, and then set the fork down and just come back to it in about five minutes. And I we were doing that and we were like in the middle of this great set of conversations. You, Timothy, myself, Andrea, Jack, Suzanne, and and then there came a point when I'm like looking at the fork and I'm like, oh yeah, there, there's the fork. And I just picked it up and bloop, it just bent like a, like a piece of silly putty. It was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was striking. It's a, it's a great souvenir to have from, from a great, uh, great weekend. Yes. Um, hey, we have just a little bit of time left. And in your book, Thieves of the Night, there's a chapter titled, We Need Shamans. That came from something I got from a researcher named Joe Lewels. Joe Lewels has been on Dreamland any number of times, and he worked with Dr. John Mack as a translator when Dr. Mack went to South America. Joe Lewels speaks Spanish, and he was the Spanish translator working with John Mack as he went around and talked with shamans. So that was for John Mack's book, Passport to the Cosmos, where he compared and contrasted the UFO contact experience with the shamanic initiation. So in your book, you have a chapter titled We Need Shamans, which comes from a quote uh, from Joe Lewis. And what were you trying to get at in that chapter? Well, so the concept that, that you and Joe discussed was this idea that perhaps there is some sort of 
uh, quota that uh, the universe needs as a means of interfe interfacing with, with mankind. And I, I found that that was not only poetic, but also perhaps really insightful and perhaps close to the truth. I took a look at this and and then so seeing ways that it's it sort of compares with not only the missing four one one stuff, but also this idea that uh, changelings, these fairy changelings, were perhaps you know regular human beings that uh, were somehow gifted in some way or another. So I sort of formed a, a little bit of a hypothesis, and again, or you know, complete complete hypothesis uh, that perhaps a means of uh, people who are called to be shamans or perhaps whenever the universe wants to have people who will be more prone to having extraordinary experiences and sharing those with mankind, perhaps they are called in some sense to aspects of the wilderness. You know, the wilderness was always a place of great spiritual revelation in almost every uh, world religion. And yeah, Jesus, Jesus would walk off into the wilderness. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I, I think that maybe what we're seeing, and again, it's a stringing together a couple of different things and it's a complete thought experiment hypothesis, but perhaps when people are called into that, that place, the other, whatever this other intelligence is, touches them. And there are some who, whom it touches and come back and they just have, have had a weird experience. There are some that it touches and that has a lifelong experience. There are some that in the case of the missing 411 stuff, it touches and it kills them. And there are some in the case of the missing 411 stuff that it touches and it literally like takes them off the map for whatever reason. Like a, like someone who's trying to catch a butterfly and ends up, you know, holding it a little bit too tightly. And I wonder if perhaps that's not a, a means of whatever this is, whatever this other intelligence is in the universe, as sort of maintaining that shaman quota, because if you look at uh, if you look at a lot of the uh, people who are claimed to be hybrids in a lot of different uh, mythologies, you know the the fairy the fairy lore, the modern abduction experience, a lot of people who claim to be indigo children, star children, human fairy hybrids have always had this special insight. There's always been something special about them, acting as an intercessor between the human world and the other world. And, you know, drawing sort of, you know, your Christ analogy, that's, that's, you know, what Christ was supposed to be is God and man and one, uh, sort of combining the two, these two sort of individual, these two disparate, uh, uh, places, these two disparate, uh, two disparate worlds, realities. So I, I sort of wonder if that's not what we're seeing is a sort of an underlying, uh, motivator for this paranormal child interference, not always even abduction, but just paranormal child interference is that if you get to someone whose mind is uh, pliable enough, and there's scientific research to back this up, that younger minds are more, you know, uh, neuroplastic, as it were, that perhaps it might facilitate uh, this interaction better. And, you know, we're at a time where I think the, we can all agree that the world's in crisis and uh, it has been you know, slowly, steadily ramping up. And uh, sometimes I wonder if this isn't uh, part of uh, this other intelligence's way of reaching out to us to try to get us to wake up. And to wake up to this greater reality and our role in it, yes. I mean, yeah, we talked about enchantment and disenchantment. Um, you know, I think part of the reason that we face so many strife, so much strife, you know, environmentally, 
politically is because our world is disenchanted. You know, nothing really means anything anymore. Uh, the, the world is here for us to plunder, and uh, mankind is, you know, is a, is a nasty lot, and there's no reason to be nice to people because there's nothing beyond this existence. So why not, you know, rape and pillage not only the earth but each other? So, and I think that whatever this other force is, it's it's fundamentally opposed to those ideals, um, and that really has proven itself true time and again. Yes, and so I'm going to repeat something I said earlier. You know, like the status quo, let's say. You know, from the New York Times down, I guess the New York Times is now reporting UFOs, so i got to be careful how I say that. So <laughs> I'll, like, the, the, the mentality of the New York Times down tells us we live in a physical, material world. But from the bottom up, I'm talking about the books you've written, and I'm talking about the books I've written, and Whitley has written, and most of the guests that come on this show and Whitley's show in this site have written, um, they are talking about a non-material world, a magical world. And that is my sense. From from the bottom up, I mean, you know, to hell with books, from the bottom up, your personal experience. You know, I mean, I think that all of us have loved someone and there's nothing that really sells that sort of magical or, you know, non-materialistic reality better than loving someone. You know that it's true, but you can't quantify it. Agreed, agreed. Joshua, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, you can find a contact form on my website, joshuacutchin.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N. Or if you want to skip the middleman, you can email me at the original email that I set up for a Trojan Feast, which is still foodtaboo at gmail.com. Very good. Let's give Timothy Renner a little plug, too. How do they find him? You can find Tim Renner at darkhollerarts.com. And he runs uh, the uh, podcast Strange Familiars, which is absolutely my one of my favorite paranormal podcasts. I absolutely love it. So uh, that's a good way to get in touch with him and to figure out what he's doing. Not only a gifted a gifted podcaster, but a gifted author, musician, and artist. I really really enjoy his his visual art. As do I. As do I. Hey, thank you so much. This has been a joy, and I look forward to talking more when the next book comes out. Absolutely, Mike. Thanks so much, buddy. Appreciate it. This is Mike, and I am chiming in at the end of the editing. I want to point out that there will be two links in the show notes, both to my blog. One tells the story about Bending the Forks, where everyone around the coffee table got to play Yuri Geller, and the other one tells the story about Andrea and I seeing the very strange thing in the sky on the way to a very small UFO conference in Warwick, Rhode Island. This one was pretty weird, and I do not know what to make of it. I am also looking forward to having Joshua back on the show again to talk about his upcoming book, and he will be accompanied by his co-author, Timothy Renner. They will be talking about, I guess, two books, really. Two books on their Bigfoot research. Their very, uh, shall I say, open-minded approach to their research. I also want to take this moment to thank Lauren Cutts for his intro music and Andrea Lissette Villiers on the gong. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>